Welcome into Words with Wallace. I am your host, Nick Wallace, coming at you. It is Thursday, May 4th. Uh, happy Cinco de Mayo Eve uh, to those who celebrate. <laughs> Should be a lot of fun tomorrow on a Friday. Uh, anyways, I got a lot to talk about, guys. It's been about a week since you guys have heard from me. A lot has gone down. Uh, we're basically two games in into every single round uh, two series so far, besides one series, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But a lot has gone down, man. Predictably, there's been a lot of drama uh, with some of the teams that were eliminated that we'll talk about, some big announcements that actually came out a couple hours ago, and we have a big game coming up later tonight that we are going to preview as well. So um, before I wanted to get into all the playoff talk, uh, I wanted to kind of go back and talk about the NBA awards. Just to kind of mention it, um, it's been about a month since my award show podcast where I gave my picks on all on who I think should win all of the major NBA awards. Um, and the NBA has announced, I think, basically all of the major awards uh, to this point. The only thing they haven't announced is the all-NBA teams, the all-rookie teams, the all-defensive teams, and I don't know exactly when that's coming out. You know, I'm happy that they were pretty quick to announce it, uh, something that I talked about before. I think it's important that they get out the winners of these regular season awards as soon as possible, really, so people like the casual fan base isn't confused and thinking that these awards have anything to do with playoff performance for any of these players or teams. They're obviously only based on the regular season awards, so based on the regular season, I should say. So the sooner that you can get out these awards, the better. The only thing I don't like is just how, like, completely random it is. You know, it seems like they've just been kind of slow rolling these over the past couple of weeks. Uh, you know, they started off with, like, Defensive Player of the Year and Coach of the Year, and then uh, finally yesterday they announced the MVP. I just wish that there was a little bit more structure to it, whether they do it all in one, like, award show type thing uh, and kind of fit that in the same week as the play-in tournament. I think that would be the best-case scenario for these awards. Uh, but either way, let's just run through them real quick just so I can give my quick thoughts on these awards and, and all these winners, right? Uh, so, so far we have uh, Coach of the Year. That went to Mike Brown of the Sacramento Kings. That was my pick. No surprise there. Uh, Executive of the Year went to Monty McNair, also of the Sacramento Kings, the team that we'll be talking about here in a little bit. Um, so congratulations to Monty. He was, I had him on my ballot. I wouldn't have picked him to win the award, but, um, you know, certainly happy with that result. Good for him. Uh, Rookie of the Year, Paulo Bancaro of the Magic. There's really no supplies, surprise there. Uh, the Clutch Award, again, this is a new award based on clutch performances during the regular season. Uh, it felt like the NBA wanted Fox to win this one um, because they kept kind of directing people to like the clutch statistics that they had on their website. And in every single metric, Fox was number one on that list. He was awesome during uh, the round one series against the Warriors. So well-deserved for De'Aaron Fox winning the Clutch Award. One that I actually forgot to mention that I thought was funny uh, on my previous award show podcast was the Hustle Award. Uh, you know, pretty disappointing I didn't mention this because this went to Marcus Smart. Uh, I was kind of looking into this because I forgot entirely that this award existed. You know, apparently this is the second time in a row he's won the award and this is the third time he's won it in total. Uh, it was pretty funny to just like look at the NBA.com website and see like, you know, some of the stats that they use to determine the winner of this award, I guess, or, or that they recommended uh, to look at to show why Smart was deserving. And it was like, you know, charges, like deflections. They had box outs on there and like where Marcus ranked on like the entire league, which was pretty funny. 
Um, I need one for just the amount of times that dude just like hit the floor. Like just hit the floor. I don't care if it's on a loose ball. I don't care if it's, you know, whatever the situation is, if it's on a flop, if it's on a charge attempt, I want to see the stat for that because I, I have to believe uh, that Smart is up there. I think Embiid would be pretty high on the hit the floor list too. That's just my thought. I think that'd be fun. Uh, but anyways, it's incredible PR for the, the Marcus Smart team and the Boston fanboys. Uh, we're going to be checking in with RJ next week and get his thoughts on it. So it is funny that uh, Smart was able to save some PR in a season which his defensive performance and overall output declined quite a bit. So good for Marcus Smart. Happy to see that, him win the Hustle Award. Uh, defensive Player of the Year, that was Jaron Jackson the third. Uh, Jaron Jackson the third. Uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., I, sh I should say. Um, not a big surprise there. He was one of the two heavy favorites uh, to win the Defensive Player of the Year. So congratulations to him. Sixth man of the year, this is one I was pretty happy about as a Celtics fan. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon took home this award. Um, again, this is one, I, again, I was pretty excited about, not just from the Celtics fan outlook, but just because I felt like he was deserving of it, um, you know, over Emmanuel quickly, just based on, on their stats. You know, when you look at the, those guys uh, in games in which they came off the bench, I just felt like, you know, Brogdon was the better player all year and performed better. Um, you know, when his team needed him the most coming off the bench. So, um, and, and that, again, it is a regular season award, but if you if you do want to look at the first round of the playoffs as any sort of confirmation, uh, Brogdon's been a lot better than quickly so far in the playoffs, and it's not even close. Uh, most improved, another one I was really excited about because I felt pretty passionately about how this award should be interpreted. It was Lori Markkinen of the Utah Jazz, my pick to win the award, so congratulations to Lori. And then finally... They announced MVP on Tuesday, I want to say, of this week, and that, of course, went to Joel Embiid. So, again, uh, not surprised with really any of those, I would say. Um, you know, especially Embiid, I, I, he would have been, you know, again, I picked, if I could give it to anyone, I probably would have given it to Giannis. That being said, I really didn't care who won it out of Giannis, Jokic, or Embiid. Um, I probably would have guessed that Embiid was going to win it just because it kind of felt like he had the narrative on his side for, you know, the later half of the regular season. And, and as we all know, this is a narrative-based award. Um, so congratulations, Joel Embiid, man. It was pretty cool to see that video that the Sixers put out of him getting the award. Um, he was obviously really emotional. The team was really emotional. So uh, congratulations to him, man. But I'm really looking forward to the All-NBA teams. I think that that is definitely the most impactful award because that affects, you know, the contracts that people can receive in regards to, like, the Supermax clause, I believe it is, however they want to phrase that. But the All-NBA teams are very uh, impactful, and they do have those contract implications. So looking forward to seeing how those turn out. Now, I'm very excited, you know, to go over these round two playoff matchups. We have a lot of exciting matchups on our hands. But before we say hello to round two, you know, we have to say goodbye. We have to say goodbye to a handful of teams that were eliminated in round one, a handful of players as well that we'll get into. Uh, but my, my heart hurts with this one, right? Uh, we have to say goodbye first and foremost to the Sacramento Kings. What a season it was for the Sacramento Kings, right, man? I mean, it, it was, you know, I wasn't sad as somebody that wanted to see the Warriors advance. You know, I picked the Warriors to win. Um, they got Steph Curry in that Game 7 on Sunday, which was truly an awesome, awesome game to watch. One of the best games of the entire playoffs so far, without a doubt. Uh, but it was just sad for the Kings fans' perspective, right? I mean, you know, they had, without a doubt, I think the most impressive season, uh, if you look at, you know, I guess I can't say that outside of the team that eventually wins the whole thing, right? But outside of winning the title, this was probably the best season a team could have relative to the expectations before the season, right? You know, like everything in life and in sports is all about expectations and how you perform relative to them. Because if you would have told a Sacramento Kings fan before the season started, like, hey, 
you're going to get beat in seven games to the Golden State Warriors. I think any Kings fan in their right mind would take it, especially with, you know, having them understand that they were actually a three seed in the Western Conference. You know, their over-under win total at the start of the season was set at 34 and a half. Uh, they ab obviously absolutely crushed that win total by ending up at 48 wins. Uh, but let's talk a little bit more about how their season came to an end with that Game 7 on Sunday. Um, I think it was just really an example of, of just Steph Curry being far and away the best player on the court. You know, there's not much a team can do when he's in the zone like that. You know, apparently Steph uh, got some of the younger guys on the team inspired with a big speech before the game. And especially in that third quarter, he really took over. You know, he finished with 50 points, the most points ever in a game seven. Uh, Kavon Looney was incredible in that game as well. He had another 20 rebound effort. I think that was like the third 20 rebound effort of the first round series for Looney. Just amazing stuff. Uh, but let's, again, we're going to talk about the Warriors more in a, in a little bit. So I just want to kind of look at it from the Kings perspective, right? Um, you know, really the, the negative thing about how their season came to an end was just kind of the play of uh, Sabonis and then Kevin Herter as well. Uh, Sabonis is more impactful just given the, the quality of player that he was. I think he was on a lot of people's MVP ballots, probably around the four or the five spot. But still, Sabonis had an incredible season, man. He's going to be on the third team All-NBA without a doubt. Um, but he was really a, a pretty average center, and you wouldn't really un know how good Sabonis is if you only watched that first round series. You know, he only put up 16 and 11, which statistically that doesn't look too bad, but uh, he did have four turnovers a game, and it really just seemed like the Warriors got in his head, right? They forced him to take, uh, they were basically leaving him, you know, five to six feet of separation every single time he caught the ball from the top of the key, uh, which is pretty interesting because he was a decent mid-range uh, mid shooter during the regular season. He wasn't a great three-point shooter, but the Warriors were, you know, just really dared him to shoot the entire series, and he was never able to make him pay, You know, he never really beat out those mind games. So it was a pretty disappointing series for Sabonis. Uh, Kevin Herter was absolutely terrible this entire series, which is pretty disappointing. Kevin, Kevin Herter is a fun player, and I liked him in Atlanta. Liked him during the regular season in Sacramento, but he averaged nine points a game, and he shot 20% from three. I mean, he just never really had his shot going. You know, keeping those poor performances in mind from two of their starters, it's pretty impressive they even got to seven games. Uh, but the reason that they were is, is for two players in particular that I think stood out. Uh, first of which was Malik Monk. He was incredible during the Kings series uh, against the Warriors. You know, he was kind of the perfect option to bring off the bench because um, they did bring him off the bench the entire series, despite the fact that Herter was struggling so much. But because Monk was so good and obviously stepped into that shooting guard position and was an immediate offensive spark, you know, they were able to give Herter enough leaf sort of like, okay, let's let's send him out there and see if he gets hot and see if this is the game where he, you know, kind of turns into the Kevin Herter we saw during the regular season. And if it doesn't work, well, we'll just play Monk and we'll close out the game with Monk. But he was pretty awesome uh, throughout that series. But, you know, above all else, I think this series and this season for the Sacramento Kings was about De'Aaron Fox. Um, he was incredible during the playoffs. Again, he won the Clutch Award for his performances during the regular season, and he proved that this wasn't an anomaly. He averaged 27 points per game despite having a significant finger injury in that series against the Warriors. Um, and he was awesome, and it, it met the eye test. I think there were you know, at least one game in there where I think he outplayed Steph. The rest of the series, Steph was still the best player on the court. Um, but that's not <laughs> to disparage De'Aaron Fox, right? Um, this is a guy that, you know, basically a little over a year ago, we didn't really know what he was. Um, there was a lot of hype of him kind of coming out of Kentucky. And, you know, 
early on in his career anyways, but then when he was sharing the backcourt uh, with Tyrese Halliburton, a lot of people thought they made the wrong decision, uh, that the Kings made the wrong decision in deciding to trade uh, Tyrese Halliburton instead of De'Aaron Fox. And uh, Fox proved that he's a guy that you can build around. And so there's a lot of excitement for the Sacramento Kings heading into next season. And there's absolutely no reason for that team to be uh, upset uh, with how their season came to an end. Obviously, it's frustrating that you lose in a game seven at home, but when Steph Curry's playing like that, there's not much you can do, and uh, I never really expected them to win a playoff series anyway. Uh, and again, also congratulations to Coach Mike Brown uh, and Monty McNair for winning Executive of the Year as well. But as you guys know, uh, the Sacramento Kings weren't the only team that saw their season come to an end uh, this past week. Uh, another team that we have to talk about is, of course, the Memphis Grizzlies. I will Rest in peace. Nah, I hate, <laughs> I hate the Grizzlies. And boy, did their exit from the playoffs just not disappoint in any way, shape, or form. Uh, if you guys missed it, I think the game was on Saturday night. They ended up losing to the Lakers by 40 points in game six. And it was pretty funny. Um, I sound a little dumb because I was pretty critical of the Lakers. And I, I still get frustrated with the Lakers just because um, they're so obviously such a talented team. But I, I can't help but feel like the team... Uh, as a whole, picks and chooses its spots, and it was so obvious that they just didn't give a shit about Game 5 in Memphis whatsoever. Uh, but they came up, and, and they they shut me up, and they shut up any other Lakers haters out there as well, because uh, they, they unleashed an absolute ass-whooping on the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, it was just a lot of fun to see a team that's so that was so cocky all throughout the regular season just get their ass beat by a bunch of veterans that um, obviously have that proven playoff pedigree, have that championship experience for a few of the guys on that team. Uh, so it wasn't really surprising to see the, the Grizzlies lose in six. It's exactly what I thought was going to happen before the season. But man, I can't say I saw a 40-point ass-whooping uh, of that magnitude coming down the pipeline. But let's talk about it, because even after the Grizzlies got bounced in, in such embarrassing fashion, uh, it, they actually you know, kind of dominated the headlines uh, earlier this week, because uh, a report came out from Shams Sharania, uh, obviously one of the goats of NBA reporting. Uh, a report came out that stated, uh, Dylan Brooks will not be back on the Memphis Grizzlies, and, and the wording was, under any circumstance. So uh, it was a pretty pretty strong wording right there. Uh, pretty obvious the Grizzlies are not bringing back Dylan Brooks. But what's key about that is just kind of the timing of it, right? You don't often see a team that was playing a couple days earlier, and then they come out and just say that they're, you know, this guy's not coming back. Like, let's get one thing straight. This unrestricted free agent that's been on our team for five years and been an important part of the culture that we're building, yeah, he's gone. And I hate Dylan Brooks. I mean, he's easily the biggest clown in the league. Uh, again, my biggest gripe about him is not the dumb shit that he says. It's the dumb shit that he doesn't say. Uh, because every time he has a bad game or the Grizzlies lose, he's not available to the media. And he actually was fined a pretty significant amount uh, from the NBA uh, for skipping out on media duties. So I thought that was pretty ironic as well. Uh, but that being said... I just didn't really love that the Grizzlies did that because it just kind of felt like they were making Dylan Brooks their scapegoat. Now, if the Grizzlies wanted want to make the decision to not bring back Dylan Brooks, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I mean, the guy was pretty brutal uh, as far as on the offensive end of the court anyway, and he's a bit overrated on defense. But, you know, his woes on offense were pretty well documented. I mean, he shot during this series against the Lakers, he shot 31% from the field and 24% uh, percent from three-point line. 
Um, and it just felt like he wasn't doing enough in the defensive end to make up for not only his just poor shooting, but his horrible shot selection. He's he's a classic, you know, he's a pretty egotistical guy, if you couldn't tell. Uh, and that comes out, and he'll take shots that are way too big for him in the moment, um, even though they're a team that struggles with half-court offense. But, again, I just thought it was kind of lame. It's like they're really doing everything in their power to protect the image of Ja and some of the other stars on that team, um, which makes sense. I mean, Ja's not going anywhere. Bain's not going anywhere. Triple J isn't going anywhere. Uh, but it's just kind of lame. It's like, look, dude, you guys were going to lose to the Lakers either way. You're not nearly as close as your regular season record would indicate. Uh, so it is pretty funny that they came out and said that. So uh, they will have a pretty big void to fill. I mean, whether you like Dylan Brooks or not, I do feel like his identity kind of represented a lot of what Memphis was. Like they're they're clearly a big uh, FU team in, in the words of Bill Simmons, right? They definitely have an edge to them, which, you know, I think is part of the reason why they have been so successful in the regular season the past couple years. So it is, you know, I do think if they really nail that, you know, fifth starter spot and they get a guy that is a really, really good 3 and D option um, and maybe doesn't have as much uh, to say as Dylan Brooks, I think that they'll be right back in the mix next year. Uh, but it's good. It's a difficult spot to land. I mean, you got teams like Phoenix that can't figure out that fifth spot, teams like Cleveland that can't figure out that fifth spot. So uh, it's going to be, you know, very competitive for them to get the OG and an OB type to kind of complete that starting lineup. But, uh, you know, on the positive note for Memphis, you know, Ja did impress me in the playoffs, I would say. You know, obviously he missed one of the Laker games, uh, and it was a game that the Grizzlies ended up winning. But, you know, even though he was playing through injury and all the off-the-court shit that he dealt with earlier in the season, he was fine uh, on the basketball court. You know, obviously the Lakers' entire defensive plan was designed to stop him, and he still gets to his spots better than nearly anybody else in the league. He can get to the basket at will. Um, and even despite having a significant hand injury, he played pretty well, shot the ball pretty well. So as someone that's not the highest on jaw, I was impressed with what I saw from him in the playoffs. And the team drafts really well over the past several years. I mean, that it's a really good organization. They're a well-coached team. And, you know, they have all the, the major key players. So they are going to be back in the mix next year. But I'm not going to take them serious, and nobody else is going to take them serious until they do something in the playoffs. And uh, they're going to need to improve their roster in a major way or have somebody take a really significant leap. Maybe it's a guy like Desmond Bain uh, for them to get it over the hump and move on uh, to becoming a real contender in the Western Conference. Uh, moving on, uh, we have to say goodbye to another team. You know, I thought we were going to be saying goodbye to this team a lot earlier, but we have to say goodbye to the Atlanta Hawks nonetheless. I will remember you. Do you guys hear my cat? My cat is going, Cheeto, what do you need, dude? Sorry about that. God damn. Hopefully he, he quiets down. Anyway. Uh, let's talk about the Hawks, shall we? Maybe, I don't know, maybe he was doing a bird call of some sort. But, uh, man, you know, I think despite the fact that I thought that, you know, I was overall impressed with the Hawks is what I should be saying, right? I thought that they were going to get just roll over and get swept uh, by the Celtics. I think they got swept by the Heat last year. Maybe they stole a game, but they looked awful uh, in the playoffs against the Heat last year. And I thought it was going to be more of the same this year against my Celtics. But, um, you know, they obviously shocked a lot of people by winning two of those games. And even in game six, um, I think the last time I talked to you guys was right before game six, what ended up being the closeout game. Uh, I was I was calling out my C's, hoping that they would come out and really uh, impress in a dominating victory over the Hawks. They won the game, but it wasn't a dominating victory. I mean, the Celtics clearly had to flip a switch in game six to overcome the Hawks. Uh, and it just showed that, you know, Trey Young... You know, I think it's going to be really difficult to ever win in, in a real way uh, and, and win a championship if Trey Young is your best player just because of how much of a liability he is on the defensive end and how ball-dominant he is on offense. You really have to run everything through him. 
But he's a dog, man. I mean, he's got no fear. There's a reason that that Hawks team ended up, you know, kind of being ahead of a schedule a couple of years ago, upsetting Philly and making it to the Eastern Conference Finals. He has no fear. Um, he's extremely talented. He's he's fun to watch when he's cooking. Um, and it just also is a, a reminder that Atlanta has a lot of depth. That's a team all the way back during the power rankings. I said Atlanta's got, you know, 10, 11 real guys on their roster. They improved their team even at the trade deadline by picking up a guy in Sadiq Bay for a couple second round picks, I want to say. Like they are, they're super deep. And again, I've said this before, but I think it's almost to the detriment of that team because they don't really know who their core guys are. They don't, you know, they don't know what, exactly what their rotation is come playoff time. So I think with a little bit more time from Quinn Snyder and if they can, you know, pull off like a three for one trade that people have been talking about with Atlanta for years, whether it's a guy like John Collins or a DeAndre Hunter getting shipped out, it could open up things for guys like Okongwu uh, to play more minutes next season, as well as a guy like Jalen Johnson that, that showed some real flashes against Boston and later on in the regular season. Atlanta's got a lot of talent on that team now. Uh, it's going to be hard to win in the East with teams like Milwaukee and Boston still around. But if they can pull off a three for one, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see them in the top, you know, four seeds in the Eastern Conference next year. But they have some work to do to get to that point. Uh, and finally, we have we have one more goodbye to say right now. Uh, it is not a goodbye to a specific team. It is a goodbye to a specific person. Uh, because since my last episode, uh, we had a very notable firing that was announced earlier today. And it's a firing of Bucks head coach. Mike Budenholzer. I will remember you. Man, you know, I, now I called for it. Now, I don't know if, if, if the words with Wallace Pot has enough listeners, if that was the straw that broke the camel's back, but I did think that it was the right move to get rid of Coach Bud. Uh, that was reported by Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN earlier today, just a couple hours ago, actually. Um, and e even though I, I thought this was going to happen, I was still almost surprised to see it because, again, the guy did win a championship. You know, you hear things in, in you know, the, the update from Waz, and, and he said something like, you know, Mike Budenholzer has won 70% of his games during his time with the Bucks, And you're just like, shit, like... It's a lot of games. Like, it is still ultimately hard to get rid of that guy. So I respect the front office for the Bucks of, of recognizing, like, hey, you know, he was a good coach and we won a championship with him and we're grateful for the time that we had with him here in Milwaukee. But if we want to, you know, re you know, get over the hump again and, and win multiple titles, you know, I don't think he's necessarily the guy for that. I don't think he's the guy to max maximize the amount of talent on that roster because they have a ton of talent on that roster. Uh, but I, I think, you know, again, the tough thing for the Bucks is that, you know, I don't think anybody saw this coming. They certain no one, you know, certainly nobody saw them uh, losing in the first round to Miami. And I didn't think they'd be in a situation where they had a reason to fire Bud. Uh, because now it puts them in a tough spot where, you know, the top coaching candidates just a couple months ago and Ime Udoka and Quinn Snyder, who I just mentioned with the Hawks, those guys are off the market. Ime is going to be coaching the Rockets. Again, Snyder's coaching the Hawks. I don't really know who those other top head coaching options are out there. Um, talk about a desirable job. I mean, obviously there's going to be a lot of pressure on the next Bucks head coach, but you're inheriting the best player in the world and a really, really great supporting cast. Um, so, you know, we'll see how they, how they decide to fill that void, uh, fill the void that coach Bud left. Um, but they do have a lot of pressure on them. Like I've been saying, like, you know, again, this was a huge disappointment this season. Um, you know, I think that, you know, if you're a Celtics fan like myself, it could be scary that if they bring in the right coach that they could unlock another level of this team and another level of Giannis. Like, I want to remind you guys again that like, you know, before 
Coach Bud, I think they had like an interim coach for, you know, half a season or something like that. But the other, the only other coach that Giannis has had for an extended period of time during his career was Jason Kidd, who I think is a dumbass. And I, I think a lot of people think, uh, other people think is a dumbass as well. And I, if you remember, Jason Kidd was doing this like weird, like, oh, we're going to run Giannis at point guard thing, which I, you know, I was younger and I, I bought into it. I was like, wow, look at his stats. Like, you know, maybe the, maybe Jason Kidd's a genius and this is working. And now maybe he was a genius just to get Giannis to rock a little bit more. But I think that was just because Giannis's development, you know, you know, compared to the guy that he was that he got drafted, you know, to where he was a couple years into his career was just so striking that uh, obviously his stats were going to go crazy either way. But I just don't think we've I, I don't think Coach Bud was the right coach for that team. I don't think he's a great coach in general. So it is scary to, to you know, of what this team could be if they have a coach that really elevates the talent on that roster. But again, there's a lot of pressure coming off a terrible upset. And they're a really old team. You know, I was just kind of thinking about that, you know, just now. And I, I didn't know the stats, so I was looking into it. And yeah, before this this season that just happened uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks, they were the oldest team in the NBA. Their average age was 29 and a half, which is ancient for uh, NBA standards these days. So yeah, man, and they didn't get any. They didn't get any younger during the season. It wasn't like they had any young guys really step up and play a real spot in their rotation. I mean, they acquired a guy like Jay Crowder who didn't do shit for them in the playoffs, but he did increase that average age. It's probably north of thirty now. Uh, so we'll see what direction the Bucks take with their head coaching. But I did want to mention it because your host of Words with Wallace was on top of it, man. I I, I kind of saw this coming. So uh, goodbye to Coach Bud and best of luck with his future endeavors. Uh, and finally, man, let's move on. Let's talk about the series that are going on right now because we are in, in for a real treat. We're in for a real treat with round two in general. Again, I've said this before, but I think that any of these teams uh, could make it to the finals and it wouldn't be shocking. That's just how talented the NBA is these days. Uh, and we have some really awesome matchups. Let's start off uh, with Warriors versus Lakers. Now, this is the only series that I have not seen the outcome of game two yet because that is scheduled to start in about an hour or so. Uh, so currently the series is at 1-0 in the Lakers' favor. They took game one. Um, I didn't have a podcast before this series eventually started and before this matchup was actually finalized. Now, if I had to guess, again, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, you can take my word for it for what it's worth. I would have said Warriors in five. That looks a little dumb now because I wasn't expecting the Warriors to drop game one. Uh, my thought process heading into this series was just that I really liked Golden State's pace. I liked how they looked against the Kings. I just obviously trust their experience um, across their entire roster as a team that literally just won the championship. Whereas on the Lakers side of things, I want to say that only Davis and LeBron are, are, I think, the only guys there from the Lakers championship team. Because I don't, I don't think Schroeder was a part of that roster. But anyways, they're the only two guys in the championship roster while Golden State obviously just won the whole thing last year. Again, I'll mention it. You know, the, the, my frustration with the Lakers picking and choosing their spots were, you know, I feel like the effort and, and energy with Golden State is a lot more consistent. Uh, they overcame their uh, can't win on the road narrative by winning two huge games in Sacramento's during round one. So I just felt really good about Golden State. I liked how they handled Sabonis and the strategies that they took to defending Sabonis in the first round series. Uh, and I felt like a lot of those similar strategies could apply to guarding Anthony Davis, uh, uh, somebody that's been up and down all season, but his jump shot really hasn't been reliable uh, this entire season either. So maybe daring him to shoot a little bit could work out in their favor. And that was just kind of my thought process before game one. Now, game one was was pretty interesting, right? It was a super close game. 
Um, it was a lot of fun to watch. And, and again, I, I should start off by saying, man, again, this is an absolute treat to watch Steph and LeBron. It's been a couple years since we we obviously saw the, you know, like four years in a row of getting Warriors, Cavs in the finals and getting Steph versus LeBron on the biggest stage. But it certainly makes this series feel like much more than a round two matchup. Um, you know, two guys just really at the at the peak of their their craft, despite uh, their advanced age. LeBron being thirty eight, Steph being thirty four. I want to say uh, so. It's really special that we get to watch this, and I, I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as I am. Um, definitely my favorite series to watch outside of my Celtics, of course. Uh, but during Game One, uh, it just we we certainly saw why the Lakers are so scary. Um, and it's because Anthony Davis is the best player on that team when he's at his best. And I know that that's a, a kind of a lame caveat and LeBron's much more consistent game to game. Uh, but AD had an absolutely monster game one. He put up 30 points, 23 rebounds, five assists, and he had four blocks on the defensive end as well. Um, when he's playing like that, like that's a better effort than we saw uh, during any two game stretch of Sabonis during the first round series. So I think he reminded the Warriors that like, hey, you're going to have to take a different approach to guarding me. The way he attacks the basket, certainly the way he protects the rim uh, is far better than anything that the, the Kings could, could muster up. Uh, so that's worth noting. Um, something else I noticed on the Lakers side of things is that uh, this isn't anything new, but like, man, I do not feel good about LeBron's three ball. I cannot imagine he does either. LeBron's really had a down season shooting the ball all year. He shot 32% from three during the regular season. Um, the playoffs as a whole this year, again, what was it? It's like a seven-game sample size. He's shooting 18% from three, and he was one of eight in game one against the Warriors. Uh, I think the first three hit was like you know his first or second shot the entire game, so it was early on in the game. Uh, he took a three with like 30 seconds left uh, to be like a dagger shot. Uh, that did not go down predictably, and I didn't think it was going down when he took it. So I am interested to see if Golden State uh, maybe makes a bold decision and, and plays some mind games with Braun and sags off him quite a bit, because I think that would be pretty interesting. And, you know, maybe make him, you know, prove that he can still knock down open threes at a high level. Like, I wouldn't love leaving him open with the game on the line, but, you know, throughout, if, if he's... Um, you know, he's much more of a threat going to the basket than he is shooting the three ball right about now. Uh, it was really cool to see Jared Vanderbilt for the Lakers take on the challenge of guarding Steph Curry for most of that game. Um, he's easily one of the most versatile defenders in the entire NBA. Uh, you know, Steph didn't have his best game, but he didn't lock down Steph. I know I sound like too much of a Steph defender right now. He's obviously my favorite player. Uh, saw a lot of stuff about how Vando locked down. He didn't lock him down, but he did play really well against him. He certainly uh, defended him better than really anybody on Sacramento did. I know Davion Mitchell uh, gave him a hard time for one of those games, but it'll be interesting. To, it's just interesting to see Steph go up against a, a player that big uh, on the perimeter, and then if he beats him off the dribble, then he has to deal with Anthony Davis protecting the rim, so that's going to be a challenge for him. Um, but just in general, I felt like the defensive strategy that the Lakers took against the Warriors, they did a great job of just highlighting, I don't know if it was just that one game or maybe me being slow to react to this, but, you know, Golden State, they have two of the top, you know, pro three shooters ever, you know, some would argue they have the two best shooters ever on their team. And, you know, the way that they play and how many open looks they generate and the movement off the ball is so impressive that it's easy to forget how many non-shooters Golden State has out there at any given time, right? Um, obviously, they diversify their lineups to try to avoid having all these guys on the court as, at once. But the Lakers really made it obvious during game one, like, we're okay with Draymond shooting the ball. We're okay with Kevon Looney uh, shooting the ball. We're okay with Gary Payton II shooting the ball. These guys had like 10 feet of separation when they touched the ball on the perimeter. 
Lakers. And Golden State's doing all their dribble handoff shit. And the Lakers kind of played it perfectly. Like, once that handoff was completed to a Steph, to a Clay, to a Jordan Poole, you know, somebody like Anthony Davis is agile enough to close the gap and still be there for help on the screen. Um, so it was really impressive that they were able to give the non-shooters that much space while still uh, taking away the options of the guys that can shoot the rock at the highest level. So it'll be interesting to see if, if Golden State changes their lineup to get more you know, positive shooters out there. But, uh, you know, I don't think Looney, Green, or Gary Payton II are going to do anything to change the Lakers' defensive strategy because I'd be comfortable shooting uh, with them shooting the ball if I was a Lakers fan for sure. Other thoughts on the game, more from the Warriors' perspective on this one. Uh, Jordan Poole, man, <laughs> like, you know, he got hot, and it, especially during that third quarter, I think he had, like, back-to-back-to-back threes for the Warriors, which was massive. He was in the midst of what was comfortably his best game of the playoffs so far. Uh, but ultimately, I, I, I don't know if I can say that was bad for the Warriors that he played well early on, uh, but it certainly killed them late in the game. Uh, we'll get to that in a sec. I saw a tweet that was hilarious. Again, I forget who exactly tweeted this shit, but someone said that, like, Jordan Poole plays, like, Steve Kerr spun him around, like, ten times before he goes in the game. And once I saw that tweet, I just, like, can't unsee it. Because he does play like he's dizzy on the court. Like, his feet are never set. He plays so rushed. It's like everything is trying to be like a, like a House of Highlights clip. Every time he touches the rock, and it drives me nuts. I know I sound like a, a major old head, you know, bitching about the way that Jordan Poole plays. But that's just how I feel. I, I hate Jordan Poole. He wasn't good during last year's playoffs. But again, he was in the midst of an awesome game last night. He was shooting the ball well, especially from three. Uh, and Golden State had to really, you know, claw their way back into this game. I mean, they went on a 14-0 run uh, to, at the very end of the game to eventually end, that ended up tying the game with a minute and a half left. They looked like they were dead in the water. Steph hit a couple big shots, and, and before you know it, it's a 14-0 run, and they're tied with a minute and 30 left. Uh, ultimately, the Lakers, I think it was D'Lo, uh, had the, a couple buckets after that at that point. Some really big buckets from D'Lo to give the Lakers a lead. And Golden State was down three uh, with basically one possession left. Um, they had, I think, 15 or so seconds before the, before the possession started. Uh, and essentially, they made the decision to double-team Steph right away, which I think was predictably the right decision. He makes one pass over to Draymond. Draymond swings it around the arc to Jordan Poole. And with 10 seconds left in the game, Jordan Poole catches it, and he just takes, like, literally what had to have been a 30-footer. I mean, he was a good, like, 8 feet from behind the line. Uh, now, albeit they were down 3 at this situation, there was only 10 seconds left, they did need a 3. And I actually saw more people defending the shot than I thought that I would on social media over the past couple days. But if you want to know if it's a good shot or not, obviously he bricked it. I should mention that. He absolutely bricked the shot. It wasn't close to going in. Um, if you want to know if it's a good shot or not, just look at Steph's reaction. Watch the game back or at least watch that play and you can look like Steph wants to blow his head off. Because, again, I mean, a lot of teams, you'd be like, hey, we just want an open look. I mean, 10 seconds isn't a lot of time. The Lakers are a great defensive team and this and that. And Poole was shooting the ball well. Yeah, but, like, the Warriors had the momentum, I feel like. Because they, again, just clawed their way back in this game. Steph hit some insane threes with, like, zero separation. And so you just feel like the Warriors and what Steve Kerr have proven over the past decade is that they're going to be able to get up a good look, even if you call timeout or something like that. So Jordan Poole took the biggest shot of the game. He didn't deliver for his team, and it, it makes you question if uh, him getting hot earlier in the game was ultimate to the detriment to the Warriors because maybe he wouldn't have had the cojones to take a shot like that. 
Uh, other quick parting thoughts in this series, uh, D'Lo, like I mentioned earlier, was really good. You know, when he's good, he's really good, and he shoots the ball at a high clip. He can score the ball. He's really crafty. It's just, you know, he's like flipping a coin if, if you're going to get the good or bad version of him. Uh, but what I do like about the Lakers is, again, their depth and their flexibility they can do with their roster because they also have a guy like Schroeder on the team. And Schroeder's been really awesome for them. Uh, he was awesome for them during the Memphis series. He was actually pretty good in, in spurts. Uh, during game one at just chasing around Steph and just his effort on the defensive end of the court as well. Um, he's hit some big shots during this playoff run. Uh, and he, he's, you know, he's just the perfect guard to bring off the bench. And he's a perfect compliment to a guy like D'Lo because he gives you so much more on the defensive end of the court uh, with his wingspan. At one point, he had like a perfect poke and swim on Steph, uh, which swung the momentum and gave him an easy layup on the other way. Uh, so Schroeder's been really good. I guess a question that I have for Lakers fans, is he, is Schroeder in the, in the, you know, Lakers role players Hall of Fame if, if they end up winning something with this team. Now, I'm kidding about that, but you do have to take into account the fact that Schroeder's on the veteran minimum, I want to say right now, for the Lakers. And if we think back to a couple years ago, uh, he actually declined, a, I think it was four years. It was This is reported. This wasn't like, I don't know if this was co completely confirmed, but it was reported that Schroeder declined a four-year, $84 million contract with the Lakers about two years ago uh, that he was offered during the middle of the season, and he wanted to wait and see how the rest of the season played out and take it to free agency. Uh, ultimately, the rest of the season did not break in Schroeder's favor. I don't even think that Lakers team made the playoffs. And then he ended up signing like a one-year, like $5 million contract with the Celtics and the Celtics moved over to Houston and all that shit. Anyway, he could be making $20 million a year and taking up $20 million in cap space for the Lakers. Uh, and he's only taken up the veterans minimum. So when you take that into account, uh, I think Lakers fans are really high on, on Dennis Schroeder. His bank account may be lower uh, than it could have been, but his PR... His PR is higher because of that, so keep that in mind. Uh, that's all I got for Lakers Warriors. Probably spent too much time on that, given when you guys hear this, it's going to be two games into this series. But my parting thoughts are I'm still taking Golden State. Uh, might not be in five games, looking like it might might take a couple more games for Golden State to kick, take care of business. But I'm not going to let game one get in my head too much. I think the Warriors have a lot up their sleeve. Uh, but I think this is going to be a lot closer series than I was anticipating. But I still think that Golden State finds a way to get it done. Moving on to uh, the absolute rock fight that is Knicks versus Heat. Uh, an ugly series that was, uh, you could argue, uh, is lacking talent. Certainly lacking talent compared to the other playoff matchups we have at this point in time. Uh, you, could, you could argue that this ugly series got a lot uglier during Game 1. So uh, my pick before the series was Knicks in 7. Uh, I'm feeling pretty good about that. I think that, that you know, that's where we are headed. Uh, but the series is currently at 1-1. And I think the more interesting game far and away was, was game one. Uh, you know, this game was obviously in New York. It was a great crowd. New York was playing well early to start the game. But despite a really significant ankle injury from Jimmy Butler, uh, you know, the Heat were able to steal game one. And I thought that this was a particularly awful loss for the Knicks when you watched it. Uh, Jimmy got hurt at some point. I want to say it was like, you know, maybe a couple minutes left in the fourth quarter of the game. Um, and... Just what was disappointing about that is obviously it sucks to see Jimmy go down. We've had way too many injuries this playoffs, and um, it, it sucks to see a team that already suffered a major injury blow and having no Tyler Hero uh, lose, you know, Jimmy Butler, with especially with how special he's been playing uh, and him completing, you know, having the best playoffs out of anybody so far uh, Jimmy Butler was before this injury. So he gets hurt at the end of game one. And it was just really bizarre to watch the Knicks just refuse to attack him off the dribble because 
Uh, Spolster made the decision of just keeping him in the game. And now he was, you know, this looked like a classic weird sprain. I think Josh's heart's foot kind of got under Jimmy's and he, he rolled his ankle. Um, I don't think it's broken or anything like that from, from my ankle injury expertise here. Uh, but I will say that he was, you know, barely moving out there. Like he was just chilling in the corner on offense, like totally like such an obvious decoy, like so obvious to the point that I was like almost disappointed in that Spolstra left him out there. Like we can all see it. Like, I can't believe you're leaving this guy out there right now. Like I know that your team kind of stinks, but you have to be able to put in like Caleb Barton or Gabe Vincent, if they weren't already out there or Struess or even Duncan Robinson. Cause he's probably playing better defense than Jimmy was at that point. Um, but anyway, they left Jimmy out there and, and the Knicks just refused to attack him. Like, you know, there was one play where Barrett had the ball and he switched into Kyle Lowry when he had Jimmy on him for a second. And it's like, like, yeah, sure. If Jimmy's healthy, maybe you'd prefer to go at Lowry, but not in this state, like attack the bad ankle. Like it's all, it's all fair when it comes to playoff basketball. Like this is going to be a rock fight. And Lowry ended up stripping him at the basket, which was a major momentum swing for the Heat. And, you know, the Heat were able to pull it off. And, you know, the main thing that they were able to pull off was buying Jimmy a lot of time. Because you knew that, you know, once the, the Heat secured that Game 1 win on the road, that Jimmy wasn't going to play in Game 2. And, you know, basically they bought him a full six days of rest. Because he obviously missed Game 2. Uh, game 1 was on, what was that, Sunday, I was saying? And then Game 3 isn't until Saturday. So Jimmy's having almost a full week to recover from that ankle injury. They got a pretty generous schedule uh, this week. They got more rest than really any of the other playoff teams this week for some reason. So uh, we will see. But, you know, Game 2 uh, was a, a good bounce-back win for the Knicks, even though, you know, again, they didn't. the Heat didn't have Jimmy Butler, so I don't know if that says much. But, you know, Julius Randle came back. Uh, he looked pretty good. He, he played pretty well, uh, especially compared to how he was playing even pre-injury in these playoffs. Um, quickly for the Knicks is still MIA. You know, he's been really disappointing for them this entire playoff run, so you'd like to see him produce more later on in this series. Uh, Jalen Brunson was pretty amazing. Um, you know, again, he's just been, you know, automatic for the Knicks and has really cemented himself as the best player and a really great option to close out these playoff games. So uh, we will see, man. I don't know if, I don't think there's been any update on if Jimmy is playing yet again. It's only Thursday, so we'll we'll get some clarity on whether he's playing game three or not. Uh, but I still like the Knicks in this series overall. Uh, clearly, they are the healthier team, especially now that they have Julius Randle back. Uh, again, you know, Jimmy's health is up in the air. Uh, I think that they're going to be able to take advantage of this depleted Miami squad, despite the miracle run that they had over the Bucks. You know, again, MSG is an awesome advantage for the Knicks, but there's not a real advantage for the Heat at, you know, Crypto Bros Arena. That, that place is freaking empty even for playoff games. So uh, I do like the Knicks to pull things out. I think it might take them six or seven games, but I do think New York is somehow going to be advancing to the Eastern Conference Finals. But uh, we will give an update on that series on the next podcast, of course, as well. Uh, moving on to a series that has shocked a lot of people, but hasn't shocked Jaboy. Uh, we're talking about Nuggets versus Suns. Uh, again, I just want to say, you know, again, I'm a Celtics fan. I'm a Celtics fan first and foremost. But my Western Conference team all season has been Denver. Uh, welcome aboard the Denver uh, bandwagon. There's there's plenty of room to join. Uh, this team is really good, man. Uh, I, I said Nuggets uh, in seven before this series started. I do think that they should be able to take care of business in probably five games at this point. Um, but again, Phoenix is, is still a good team. Job is far from done. Uh, you know, Kevin Durant and Devin Booker can pull off something special within the next couple games. They are getting some momentum heading back to Phoenix. Uh, but right now, Denver's up 2-0 in the series, and it's been a pretty convincing win so far. Not blowouts by any means, but just some really impressive stuff from the Nuggets. 
Um, Jokic has been incredible, um, especially in game two of the series. He was massive, but on the series, again, two game sample size, but he's averaging 31, 18, and five. Um, you know, Phoenix's defense was pretty suspect. Uh, and we saw that during their struggles against a really uh, depleted Clippers team in round one. And, you know, they really have had no answer for Jokic. Um, you know, the two games so far from the Nuggets perspective has, has been a tale of two Jamal Murrays. Uh, during game one, he was literally the best player on the court. Like, it was a masterclass from him. He was red hot. He was banging threes from like 30 feet. It was insane. Um, it was really just crazy to see Jamal Murray be the best player on the court, on the court with, you know, in a series that saw, you know, a two-time MVP winner in Jokic, obviously Durant's out there. Booker's been one of the best players so far in the playoffs. And so he was incredible. And the main reason that they were able to pull out game one, uh, and he was absolutely horrible in game two. I think he finished with like eight or nine points. He, he couldn't buy a bucket. Uh, but the fact that Denver was still able to win that game, despite Murray being such a vital uh, part of their offense, especially is really disappointing for the Suns because I think that's one of the games you have to steal. You, you can't really feel good about, you know, being down 0-2 even though you're heading back to Phoenix. But, you know, the headliner so far from this series, unfortunately, more injury news to talk about. During game two, I think it was, you know, about halfway through the third quarter, uh, CP3 kind of pulled up. I think he was on defense contesting a shot. Uh, and it was said that he hurt his groin. Uh, he was out for the rest of the game. I think there's been mixed reports on how long he's expected to be out for, but I wouldn't expect to see him back this series unless it maybe goes seven. Um, it's not looking good for CP3. Unfortunately, we've seen this story play out many times. Uh, we saw the shitty injury luck with the Clippers last series. Uh, people said, again, that along with the Clippers, Phoenix was the next best or the next worst health bet you could possibly have. And unfortunately, that's come to fruition a little bit. Uh, now, maybe if they hadn't made the Durant trade, uh, they could survive an injury like this. And I'm not saying that to bash Kevin Durant, but like, you know, they really, they lost all their depth in that trade, right? Um, you know, again, they didn't have much, they didn't really lose any point guard depth. And so now we're going to be seeing a lot more of campaign uh, who I can't stand. I just, I hate dudes with ugly jumpers and, and I think campaigns jumper is, is disgusting. So I have ugly jumper bias. I don't care if it goes in. It just, it just looks so bad. But anyway, we're going to be seeing a lot of campaign and, and, Phoenix is just so paper thin to begin with, dude. Uh, this is going to be really tough for them to overcome. Um, maybe this is, you know, what finally ignites Kevin Durant to just really try to take over this series. Again, he's been good and they won round one, you know, relatively easily in five games in large part because of how well Devin Booker's playing and he's kept it up, uh, averaging, you know, 30 plus points, still shooting the lights out and playing 42 minutes a game. Uh, but I just need a little bit more from Durant, man. I've been saying it this whole playoffs. It's just like he he still gets his 26. Like he gets like the most silent 26 ever. He could sleepwalk uh, to that many points because that's how talented of a scorer and shooter he is. But like we just need to see him really get aggressive. And so I think Durant's going to have a massive game in one of these two games in Phoenix that I think the Suns will end up winning. I do not. I'd be really surprised if Denver ends up sweeping them. I think that'd be a bad look for Durant to get swept two years in a row. Uh, I know a lot of people love you know, bashing on Durant. So I'm sure that'll get mentioned a lot if that ends up being the case. But uh, man, just in general, it's sad for the Suns. I just, I don't know if they're going to be able to overcome this Chris Paul loss just with how thin their team is. Uh, and Denver looks really, really good, man. They only have one loss so far in these playoffs. Obviously, they're only, what, seven games in at this point. Uh, and that one loss, they literally clawed their way back into the game against the Timberwolves and honestly uh, should have won that game in regulation fell down in overtime, clawed their way back in and could have won in overtime and Ant ended up hitting a really big shot for the Wolves. So 
Uh, Denver's looking scary, man. They're looking like, you know, they're in all likelihood headed to the Western Conference Finals. And uh, it's cool to see this matchup in the West because I think these were the two, the two teams that people had the most faith in uh, meeting in round two here. So moving on to the final series, uh, I think you guys know where we're headed with this one. We're talking Celtics versus 76ers. Uh, don't want to spend too much time on this one just because I do have my guy, RJ Rosasa. Uh, it's going to get back on the horn with me at some point next week. Uh, I'm thinking Tuesday or Wednesday next week. We'll talk more about that in the outro here. Uh, but I do want to do, we're, we're going to be focused mainly on the Celtics and that. So I'll, we'll have a bigger Celtics conversation next week. But let's preview what's happened so far. Again, didn't have a podcast before this matchup was 100% finalized, even though I knew they were going to beat the Hawks. So I didn't get my pick in before this series, especially with the Embiid injury news. I would have said that I think the Celtics should win in five. Now, I still might like that. I could totally see my C's ripping off another three in a row here. Um, and if you guys missed it, the series is at 1-1. Now, part of the reason I said five games was because, again, I, I alluded to this Embiid injury news. Like, you know, we knew that he got hurt against the Nets and they finished, you know, the Sixers ended up closing out the Nets in, in that game four without Embiid even playing at all. I just felt like with the Celtics ended up, you know, playing with their food against the Hawks and the Sixers getting a couple extra days of rest that it was going to be a no-brainer that Embiid was going to be back for game one. But, you know, apparently the injury was more serious than they had let on and Embiid ended up missing game one. So, you know, this was a smash spot for the Celtics. My confidence was through the roof. Obviously, I felt bad for Embiid. You'd love to see him out there. Uh, but again, the Celtics need to be able to take advantage. I think they were the better team anyway. And, you know, you lose the MVP, uh, you know, you, they should be able to take care of business, especially in the game at home. But that's not how game one went down. Uh, Harden went 2017 on our asses. It was insane. Uh, it was a game in which nobody could stop anybody. Like the Celtics scored at will too. I think Tatum and Brown both played extremely well for the Celtics. It wasn't like we really, you know, came up short um, because one of our star players, you know, played poorly. That wasn't the case. It just so happened that Harden was far and away the best player on the court. I mean, he couldn't miss from three he shot. Uh, he ended, he finished with, I think 45 points. Uh, I want to say, and of course the game winning shot over Al Horford. Um, it was just disappointing as a Celtics fan to not see them find a way to win because even though I was like, man, this is this is cute, like Harden's going off. I still had a lot of confidence heading into the fourth quarter that the Celtics were going to, you know, find a way to win that game just with the amount of talent that they had. And, you know, obviously Embiid being such a big part of that team. But it was just the late game execution for the Celtics that was the disappointment. Um, you know, Brogdon, somebody that's been a rock for us all season and somebody who I just love his poise and composure on the court, um, just went, you know, total brain fart. He went total... Uh, Jacoby Myers, uh, my fellow Patriots fans know what I mean by that, in, in a possession late in the fourth quarter. Um, basically, it was a, a horrible possession from the Celtics from the start. It just seemed like they were passing up open shots left and right. I mean, I guess they weren't wide open shots, but nobody wanted to eventually shoot the rock as the shot clock was ri winding down here. Uh, and the ball ends up with Brogdon's hands with like three seconds left in the shot clock. He catches it, like makes a move, and then instead of looking to shoot, and again, it's it's home. Yeah, you know, I feel like the coaches should be able to communicate what the shot clock is at this point in time. He just whips the ball across the court, uh, hit Tyrese Maxey, the fastest player on the court, right in the chest, uh, and he has the most open layup at all time, and that was totally deflating. Um, you know, at the very least, if Brogdon had just held on to it and got a shot clock violation, at least Philly wouldn't have had the easy two go for them on the other end of the court, but that. Uh, was a really big blow and a huge boost for the Sixers. And at that point, I was like, oh boy, uh, this might be tough uh, for the Celtics to end up pulling this one out. Again, I, I I don't take 
much stock in a play like that. I think it was just a brain fart play, and Brogdon didn't know the shot clock. I just don't understand why he made that pass in the first place. But whatever. Everybody makes mistakes. Um, kind of circling back to the last play, if you guys missed it, um, I, I want to say that the Sixers were down one uh, with, I, I want to say, 20 or so seconds left. Uh, Harden got the switch that he wanted, getting Al Horford in the ISO. Again, a switch that he was trying to get to a lot throughout the game, especially in the fourth quarter when he was cooking. Um, but a switch I didn't feel bad about as a Celtics fan. I mean, Al is an incredible perimeter defender, especially given his size and age. Um, and he played really solid defense at Harden. I know a lot of people would have liked to have seen the Celtics doubled Harden in that situation and left P.J. Tucker open. I think it's easy to pick nits in hindsight, but I, I can't feel bad about Al having you know, a hand in his face at that point. I, I, I'm not confident that, you know, Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown or Marcus Smart or Derek White wouldn't have had the same result. At least Al has a little bit of extra length to defend uh, the shorter Harden in that situation and get a hand up in his face. But Harden did his patented step back from like 25 feet and drilled a shot in Al's face to put the Sixers up by two. Uh, and it was just really tough. It was really tough at that point because what I was disappointed in as a Celtics fan is, you know, we had the ball. I think there was like, eight or nine seconds left at that point. We called timeout. And I just had no faith, like, coming out of that timeout that we were going to end up getting a good look to win the game. And that was just a disappointing thing. And this is just a feeling that I had. I don't know if it's just an inexperience with Missoula, but I just, I was like, I don't know what the play is here. We just haven't been good in this spot all season. So um, I didn't have a lot of faith that we were going to be able to uh, overcome a couple of, of really big blows to the momentum in that shot from Harden, of course, the turnover from Brogdon. Uh, and of course, we didn't even end up getting up a look. The ball, the play was to get the ball to Smart. He went to the basket. He tried to kind of lay it up uh, to Jason Tatum and kind of drop it down to him on the block. And, and Tatum didn't even look like he was ready for the pass. Ended up being a turnover. Paul Reed makes a couple clutch free throws, and that's the ball game. So the Sixers stole game one. Uh, a lot of people in this situation would expect, just like the Heat, uh, for the Sixers to feel like they bought themselves more time to rest their star player, to rest Joel Embiid. But... Nah, I guess Embiid won the MVP and he was feeling confident. It was reported he turned to his team and said, I'm back. Uh, and he ended up playing in game two. But it didn't make, you know, it didn't make much of an impact on the game because uh, the Celtics came out and absolutely dominated uh, the Sixers last night. It was a total statement win for the Celtics at home. Um, complete dominating effort. I think the final score was like a 35-point win. I mean, this shit was over in the third quarter. Um, it was the real. It was a statement win that I was hoping the Celtics were going to be able to muster up against Atlanta to close out that series that I never got. Um, so I thought that was pretty funny that we got that statement win in Game Two. Uh, you know, it, just kind of watching the game and watching Embiid. Um, you know, he did look awkward at times. I think he fell on his own after a, his own jump shot, his patented uh, elbow jump shot. He kind of like fell over when he was walking backwards, so that was a little weird. But uh, so offensively, he was a little bit clunkier than usual, I felt like, but defensively, he looked good. I mean, he had a lot of bursts protecting the rim, and that was the big thing that you noticed. Like, the Celtics got to the, the rim at will against the Sixers in Game 1, and Embiid definitely made his presence felt. I mean, he had five blocks, and some of the blocks were really impressive that he had, so it was cool to see him uh, kind of step up on the defensive end there. Uh, but too bad it didn't matter much for the 76ers because we made 23-pointers. I mean, we shot the lights out, especially in that third quarter. We just took them to school. 
uh, and we had the uh, the main red claws out there for the fourth quarter. So uh, it was over at that point in the game. So Celtics are the better team. Hopefully they can take the momentum that they earned and that they deserve after that big game to win and run with it when this series goes back to Philly. Uh, I really expect the Celtics to win at least one of these two games. It'd be awesome if they can, you know, just really capitalize on the momentum. Like I was saying, take both of these in Philly, be back home for game five and close them off. But I don't know, man, the Sixers team, they have a lot of a lot of fight. Uh, I should mention too that in game two, Harden was MIA. Um, like he, I think he shot like two of fourteen from the field. Like it was a total. Uh, it, 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 to this point, it looks like game one was a complete anomaly. Um, game one was almost certainly the best playoff performance of Harden's entire career. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if he can repeat that at some point. I'd expect somewhere in the middle uh, of of his two games, as far as productions uh, to expect in game three here. Uh, but we'll see, man. I mean, you know, with Harden playing like that, he showed that he could step up in Embiid's absence. So maybe they can get uh, kind of rejuvenate that two-man game that was missing a little bit during the Nets since it looked like Harden was banged up. So we will see, but I do expect the Celtics to ultimately take care of business, and we will talk more about the Celtics in my pod with RJ next week. So I think that just about covers it, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, before I let you go, be sure to follow at Words with Wallace on everything, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review the show. We we love those stars. We, we got to have those stars. Uh, be sure to download the podcast as well. That goes a long way for me trying to build this thing up. Uh, and like I mentioned before, RJ is going to be joining me next week. You guys know him from an earlier episode of this podcast talking about the Celtics. And, you know, round two as a whole, we're going to be farther into these series. Maybe a couple of these series will be in the rearview mirror. And we'll be doing some conference finals preview a little bit. So uh, RJ has been locked into all the games, not just the Celtics. So we will get his thoughts on some of the other series as well. I know you guys are tired of hearing me talk for... It's probably been six or seven straight episodes solo. It was about time I got another guest on here, man. So uh, super excited for next week. That should be coming out on either Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. We will see. Uh, but I think that covers it, man. I'm going to hit this button and get up out of here. But I will talk to you guys next week. Peace.